Second Peter chapter two, verses one through nine, is where we're going to be uh, tonight. All right, I'm going to read the passage to us, and then we'll start breaking it down. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through nine. Uh, Peter says, "But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves." Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Now, as you can see, we got a lot to get covered tonight. So if you remember where we ended up last time, Peter had just finished teaching about how the prophets of the Old Testament didn't get their prophecies from themselves, but from God. That's where he had just left off. And then he goes and says, but as much as there were prophets who were called by God and moved by God as they gave their prophecies, there were false prophets in the Old Testament as well. And just as much as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, he now gives them a future prophecy about the fact that there's going to be false teachers in the church. And so, uh, what I want to point out to you is look at the future tense, though, in this passage here. Uh, and starting in there in verse 1, is just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Then in verse 2, many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Verse 3, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you. Peter has given them a warning. Remember, this is in the early still stages of the church. And he's saying to them, look, there's going to be false teachers that cro cro crop up in the church and you need to watch out for them. Now, I'm going to say this a few times tonight because we're going to a couple times be tempted to say, well, how do we know what they look like? That's the next time we get together. The second half of this section, Peter gives a lot more of a description of what they look like and how they act. We'll deal more with that when we get together. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with something else. But I want to show you that this prophecy that Peter is giving here about the fact that there's going to be false teachers in the church, he wasn't the only one that said it. I want to show you, take a look at uh, Acts chapter 20. I'm going to show you three places where Paul warned of the fact that there's going to be false teachers in the church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20 is one of the first places, verses 28 through 31. Now, I also want you to not only turn, but write these passages down, because we're going to be coming back to them again tonight for a further part of our study. Each one of these passages we'll be coming back to. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Remember, he wasn't sure if he'd ever see them again. And he makes this statement, in, starting in verse 28. He said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day, with tears. Here he says, 
Heads up, after I leave, there's going to be, in the future, these that come up within the church, and they're going to be false teachers, and they're going to, uh, well, he just said watch out for them. Uh, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. Again, write this passage down as well because we'll be coming back to it. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, listen to what Paul says here to Timothy. He says the Spirit, if you notice in your Bible, it's a capital S, the Holy Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Here, Paul says to Timothy, heads up. Down the road in the church, there are going to be those who come up within the church and they are going to actually abandon the faith of the true faith. They're going to follow deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by, taught by who? Demons. Their teaching is actually going to be demons teaching. And they're actually going to be teaching it in the church. And he, again, we're not going to break, break it down too much tonight. The temptation to go there is strong, but we're not going to because that's what we'll do next time we get together. But he even just says, watch out for them. And he even says, look, they're going to forbid people to marry. They're going to order them to abstain from certain foods. And, and we'll break a lot of that more down next time we get together. But again, we see Paul says, heads up, in the future, these false teachers are going to come. Uh, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but mark this, chapter 3, verse 1, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, not rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, <clears throat> not long after these prophecies were written, if you will, of the, the, the apostles saying, look what's going to happen in the near future. Not long after that, this false teaching started to creep up in the church and has always been and even continues to this day. We have a tendency to think, oh, it's really bad now. Folks, let me tell you, it's been bad all along. Satan's been trying to, to cripple the church and kill the church. And as you're going to see tonight in our study, uh, take a deep breath. God's going to finish what he started. But he tells us to have, have our eyes open to what's going on around us. Uh, turn real quick to the book of Jude. You don't have to write, uh, look at this one. We will come back to it, but not for, for the part of, part of the study that I was referring to earlier. But in the book of Jude, you'll notice a slight difference in what Jude says versus what Paul and Peter said. See if you can catch what it is. All right, starting in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. 
for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who didn't believe, and the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for the judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, you'll notice that Jude and Peter are writing very similar examples as we read, and we're going to deal with that more later on. But what is subtly different between what Jude said and what Peter and Paul said? Anybody catch it? I'm sorry? It's past tense. You see how Peter said they're going to? Paul said they're going to. What does Jude say? They already have. Now, you, you do a study of when these books are written, guess what? Jude wasn't written much later than Peter wrote his book or Paul wrote his. So it happened right away. It happened right away and it has been all along. We could trace the history of the church and uh, you could see it. But I want you to see that there was one other person that made a prophecy about this that we need to pay attention to because it's going to be one of our most important ones. And actually, it's in Matthew chapter 7, and the one who warned us of this is Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 15 through 23. Now, I want you to stick with me here, <clears throat> because we're going to come to a very familiar passage that typically has not been tied together in the full context. And for some of you that have wrestled with this passage that has been used against Christians in a lot of places, I want you to see in the full context of what Jesus is saying here, that all together, Jesus is talking about the false teachers. Look closely at what he says here in chapter 7, starting in verse 15. He says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, in the full context... Who's Jesus talking about? The professed Christians who are false teachers and the false prophets. All right, so we're going to come back to this passage because all the, and I want you to mark that one down because what we want to do now is we want to deal with a conundrum, a, a bellyache that has been caused by the passage in Peter over the years for Christians. Uh, many people have wrestled with the true spiritual condition of these false teachers because of two places in chapter 2 that Paul, I'm not Paul, Peter makes these references, all right? It's in chapter 2, verse 1, and in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Look closely at what he says here. In chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Peter, he says, But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They, these false teachers, will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. All right? So because he said the sovereign Lord who bought them, 
there are some people who are saying, well, that sounds like they were real Christians. Well, well, you're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. But that's a good, but you're good. We're, we're going we're to answer those questions. So hang on to it, Allison. You'll have your answer in a second. But look over now at chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. It says, if they have escaped, still speaking about these false teachers, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverb, Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and the sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. And so here it talks about how uh, they knew the Lord and Savior, and it would have been better if they had not known the Lord. And because of these two places in here, there are those who now have wrestled with this and saying, okay, are we talking about true Christians, and because of their wickedness, they lost their salvation? Or is it that they never truly were a Christian at all? Or are they true Christians who didn't lose their salvation, but will be very judged very harshly at the end? And so what we're going to do now is we're going to try to use uh, Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, let me, let me tell you what God taught me years ago, and I want to kind of burn it in your brain. Whenever you come to a place in the Bible that you don't really understand, or it seems to be different from other places, you're not really sure what it's saying, you need to stop. And you need to first not only look at the context, but also know the whole of Scripture. Sometimes it doesn't, it'll do you good to just say, man, I don't know about that one for right now. Let's put that one on the burner and I'm going to keep getting to know God. You have to understand, when I grew up, I didn't grow up in a certain denomination. I actually uh, found out just this past weekend because I drove by the church that I grew up in because I was up in New England in that area doing the memorial service for that lady in Maine. And, and I went by the church in New Hampshire where my dad was pastor and I saw that it said ABC UCC. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting combination. Um, and I said to someone, when did they become an ABC UCC church? And that person said they were the whole time your dad was pastor. Didn't even know. You have to realize, I grew up in a little town in New Hampshire where the Roman Catholics met in one building and all the Protestants met in the other building. The town was too small to have a Presbyterian church and an Episcopal church and a Baptist church and so on. So all the Protestants met in one building and all the uh, Roman Catholics met in another. Now, here's the deal. I didn't grow up with any denominational background. My dad had a Baptist background, but I mean, we had acolytes. We said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. There was a christening bowl in the corner, but my dad never used it. But at the same time, I didn't grow up with, like some people did, with a certain denominational background, and you were raised in that denomination. When I came to know the Lord, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a denomination. And so in my study of the Scripture, I studied the Scripture to find out who God was. And when I got to the places where I didn't understand, I would hold off, and I would come back and interpret them after I understood the whole of Scripture to understand who God was, and then using that, we'll interpret. The best way I can tell it to you is this. If I wrote a book, and someone were to read that book and say, well, I don't, I don't know why Jim said this, someone that knows me well would say, wait a minute, I know Jim. You're reading it that way. He meant it this way. You understand what I'm saying? And so I'm going to challenge you. When you come to these places, there's too many people out there who will take one verse or one passage and just... 
that's the way it is, you know. Look, my Bible says. You never heard someone say, my Bible says, and they take those words, and half the time they don't even know whether or not they're quoting the actual translation from the original or someone else's translation or whatever. But the thing is, as we deal with this tonight, I want to take a quick, as much as we can, look at the whole of Scripture without doing too, too much of a study to deal with this topic. Is it possible that someone could be a believer and lose their salvation? And we've touched on this in our studies in the past, but I want to deal with this topic right here, these false teachers. Was Peter saying they were believers? I mean, they denied the Lord who bought them and they knew the Lord, but it's obvious that they're going to be judged. Is it they're true Christians because of their wickedness lost their salvation? Were they never a Christian at all? Or were they true Christians who didn't lose their salvation or are going to be judged very harshly at the end? And let's let Scripture deal with that. Oh, and by the way, all those passages we looked at that gave us prophecies about these coming guys, you're going to see some answers in each of those places. Rita, you raised your hand a little bit ago. What were those initially for? Uh, the, the, that's actually the no, the, the not two different denominations that had come together. That's what they were. And for our sake of recording, there's no need to talk any more than that. But uh, they were two denominations that I didn't even know existed at that time. So, all right. Um, so let's go back now and let's take a look at what Paul said there in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Does he give us any hint as he prophesied about these false teachers that were coming? Does he give us any hint as to whether or not they were saved and lost it or never saved or whatever? Let's start, let's start doing a little scripture study here and see what we find. What was your verse again? That's Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Thank you. No problem. I won't scold you for not writing it down. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Remember, Paul said, Keep watch over yourselves in all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that I warned for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, to be honest, as we take a look at this, Paul doesn't give us a whole lot of clue as to whether or not they're believers or not believers or saved or lost their salvation. The only clue we have here is something he says about them that will make sense later. He calls them what? Savage wolves. Put that in the back of your mind. Make a little note. We don't know a whole lot about them, except he calls them wolves. Let's jump over to 1 Timothy 4. And again, look at one of the prophecies about these coming false teachers or the false teachers that exist now that we're going to come after Paul's writings. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in the later time some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such te teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with, with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and, and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word and God in prayer. Now, here we see that these false, teach, false teachers will abandon the faith. Again, not a whole lot of information, but it is another clue. All right, the only thing we can really pull out of here is these false teachers are going to abandon the faith. What does that fully mean? We'll get to that later. Make a little note to yourself. He called them wolves in one place. He said they'll abandon the faith in this other one. Uh, let's go to 2 Timothy and see if we get any more information about these men. That might help us answer our question. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. Remember your King James says incontinent. I love that. <laughs> Brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down by, with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the, tr the truth. Men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So we get a little bit more information here about these false teachers. Here we see that they have a form of godliness. We don't know a whole lot more. They just have a form of godliness. And they say as far as the faith is concerned, they'll reject it. Now, actually in the Greek, it reads this way. They are disapproved concerning the faith. All right? Now, it doesn't fully answer our question, but it gives us a little bit of information. We know now from Paul's writings that these false teachers are going to be wolves that they're going to, what else? They're going to deny or abandon the faith. They're also going to have a form of godliness. And they're also, as far as the faith is concerned, they're rejected or disapproved concerning the faith. Yes, ma'am. Um, 7 says, all is learning and never able to come to the knowledge. Actually, in the context, that's talking about those weak-willed women. When you actually go into the Greek and see the sentence structure, that's actually, but I, I looked at that myself, and I realized that's talking about the weak-willed women, and we'll deal with them and next time we get together. So we'll come back to that. Yes, sir? In the uh, RSV in verse 5, it says, holding the form of religion denying power. Right. Again, uh, that is a good translation of it, and you're going to see, actually, you know who described them the best and gave us the clearest answer? Jesus. Go back to Matthew 7. With all these little clues we got from Paul's writing and Peter's writing, and then you would put that all together with what Jesus said to us in Matthew 7, and all of a sudden it's going to become very, very clear. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. All right. Jesus said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sleek sheep's clothing. They look like Christians, but inwardly they are what? Ferocious wolves. Isn't that what Paul called them? By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not what? Prophesy in your name. Remember, these are talking about the false teachers here, the false prophets. Prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. We were in the forefront of the ministry, Lord. Then I will tell them plainly what? I never knew you. You were saved and you lost it? No. You never, I never knew you. Now, does These, that mean that anybody who has a prophecy 
or anybody who believes in casting out demons is a false prophet? Not at all. Not at all. Because actually the Bible shows us in the, in the book of Acts that there's a prophet named Agabus. We just saw that Peter made a prophecy that this is going to happen in the future. Casting out demons doesn't mean you have, you're a false prophet at all. Actually, that is very biblical. But we're to watch the fruit. And that's why you got to hold on to next time we get together. I can't say next week because we won't get back together for three weeks because of my trip coming up. But when we get back together, we're going to look at the specifics of what do they look like? What are, the, you know, what are the things to watch out for? All right. But that's a good question. It doesn't mean anybody says they are prophecy or cast out demons. They're a false prophet. Not at all. But it doesn't mean that they're a believer either. All right. So here we see, though, Jesus called them wolves like Paul. Jesus said they look like sheep. What does that sound like? A form of godliness? You know, then most clearly Jesus continued his description and he said, I never knew them. Now, remember how Paul said these false teachers would abandon the faith? Let's go to 1 John chapter 2 and look at verses 18 through 20. 1 John's over back by the book of Revelation. And look at verses 18 through 20. And you'll see a very clear statement about those who will walk away from the faith. You've got to keep in mind, the Bible told us a long time ago in Jesus' teaching in the parable of the soils, that there are going to be some that respond, who spring up. It looks like salvation, but in time trouble comes and they walk away. They don't have root. Some are going to spring up, look like salvation, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth will choke them. They'll be unfruitful and they won't have, but the seed that falls on the good soil produces a crop. And so you got to understand, we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, look what that person did or whatever. They must be a Christian. Time will tell. Remember, we've been looking at that all the way through our study here. Why Peter said to make sure that you have these measures and quality is an increasing measure. Time will tell. In 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 18 through 20. John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Then he says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. You see the distinction there? He said they were, they were among us and they went out from us, but they didn't stick. The fact that they left shows that they really weren't one of us. Folks, you've heard me talk about this before. The Bible says without question that if you've truly been born again, doesn't say that you profess. I'm not saying you were baptized. I'm saying if you've been truly born again, God seals the deal with his spirit and you are marked as his. You are put on layaway. You can't get away if you tried because he seals you. You are his. He gives you a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says it also in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians in two different places. You are his. Now, we have to stop making judgments on flash in the pan both ways. Because sometimes, as true believers, do we not look like the enemy more than we look like Jesus? Thank God he doesn't measure us with the flash in the pan on our bad days. It's over time. Time will tell whether or not. But we need to, as believers, learn to recognize false teaching. Learn to recognize the truth versus error. When we come together next time, we'll break that down in a lot more detail. But for tonight, let's then go back and deal then with the fact that Peter says some things about them that all of a sudden are going to make a whole lot more sense. Now knowing that the prophecy about these false teachers by Jesus and Paul and Peter, as you'll soon see, 
all pointed to the fact that these false teachers never were really saved. All right? Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Peter. Of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 3. We're back at 2 Peter. Y'all couldn't read my mind. All right. It says, In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their what? Condemnation has been long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. By the way, what does Romans chapter 8, verse 1 say? There is therefore what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you see it? It's been there all along. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and is waiting. All right? And it's not sleeping. All right? Now, I'm going to come back to, I, I went somewhere in my notes, but I feel like I want to come back to that. I want to jump and deal with, why does Peter then say, deny, these men deny the Lord who bought them then? Why does he use those terms? And now Allison is ready to answer. Go ahead. Jesus bought everybody. Exactly. Let's take a look at that. Jesus' death, folks, you hopefully understand, purchased salvation for the whole world. Go to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to show you three places that actually say that Jesus bought everybody. Don't hear us say that everybody's going to heaven. All right, but look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord for that. Amen. The righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see that? Jesus' death is for the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going. The Bible's real clear that there are many who go to the way of destruction. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life. But look closely at what the scripture says. He, he died not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Now go with me to, uh, um, go to Colossians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 19 and 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Whenever I'm looking for Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, my brain always goes to the company. I've made a company called GEPCO. That helps me remember. GEPCO. That means Colossians is going to be at the end after Philippians. General Electric Power Company. That'll work. I wasn't even that smart. I just called it GEPCO. All right. For Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Look at what it says here. It says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, speaking of Christ, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you catch that? God reconciled to himself through what Jesus did on the cross. What? All things. All things. Things on earth, things in heaven. He has, they've been reconciled through Jesus' blood. It actually becomes a little bit more clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and look at verses 17 through 21. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's the big difference, remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, Jesus bought salvation for the whole world, but only those who receive it by faith are the ones who are truly sealed and born again. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Did Seth get that? God was reconciling who to himself in Christ? That's why when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He didn't say, forgive Bob, forgive Sue, forgive Joe. He said, forgive them. And when he died, he reconciled all things. Now, that doesn't mean everything's reconciled. Look at what, Pete, what Paul goes on to say. He says he was not counting men's sins against them. And he, God, has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, for years I grew up thinking the gospel was if you ask God to forgive you, then he'll forgive you. The gospel is God has forgiven you. You need to receive it. You need to receive it by faith. You need to believe it and accept it and personally receive it. And oh, by the way, that's how you deny the sovereign Lord who bought you. You see, when you deny, well, I wrote in my notes this way, either believe this and receive it by faith, or you deny him and reject him. Okay, then when you sin, and we all do. You're talking after salvation or prior to salvation? After salvation. After salvation, after salvation mm -hmm. you still have to repent, don't you? Actually, the good news of the gospel is you're already forgiven for your sins. Right. We need to confess our sins. But if you remember closely, to confess means to agree with God. In other words, God started the conversation and he said, Jim, what you just did there is not in line with my will for your life. It's not righteousness. You're already forgiven. If I confess, he's faithful and just and he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But my confession is not me saying, oh, God, I've sinned. Would you please forgive me? I'm already forgiven. But... I quench the spirit. I grieve the spirit when I don't agree with my father that what I've done after salvation is sin. But when I agree with him, it is and say, Father, thank you that that was covered under the blood of Christ. I still agree with you that it's not something you have for me. And I, repentance is still a wonderful thing. That means you're turning away from it. But you're already forgiven. Yes, ma'am. And, and actually, I've been learning that there's actually so many benefits for you in confession. I mean, we've already got His forgiveness. We are saved where it is. Mm -hmm. But the confession part, there's a healing that goes along. Tremendous. With people, in yourself. I mean, so confession is a major part of Oh, yes. Life. Go ahead. Allison. When we confess to Him and say, yes, you are absolutely right, that was wrong, help me. It keeps us from that separation, that sin. Because the longer that we say, no, that's not a sin, that's not a sin, the harder our hearts become. And the more we fall into sin and separate from him. And the more he has to, in love, amp up his discipline to get you back in line with his will. But yes. All right. So these men denied the sovereign Lord that bought them. Doesn't mean that they were saved and lost their salvation. It means they rejected what God did for them through his death on the cross. Now, what about 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22? Go back and let's look at that one then. It says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness 
than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the, proverb are, the proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit and the sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. All right, we've already kind of laid the foundation have for a while that if you're truly saved, you cannot lose it. So this can't be saying that. What is it saying? Give me some ideas. I think the, the condemnation gets heavier and heavier because you've heard the message and you continue to deny it. So that condemnation just gets heavier and heavier. Very good. If you were to go back, and we're not going to for the sake of our time tonight, to go back to our study in Hebrews, and you go back and look at chapter 6 and chapter 10 that deals with this type of an issue, and he talked, the Hebrew writer talked about how those who rejected Moses' law were judged. All right? How much more severe should the punishment be and the judgment be for those who not only reject the law of Moses, which is the word of God, but also reject the son? And you have to realize God gave his law through Moses and it was his commands. But through Jesus, we now see not only the commands of God, we also see the love of God, the mercy of God. And when you reject that, and so there's actually a passage, we're not going to take the time to turn there, where Jesus is saying, actually in one of the Gospels, he said, those who have not known what to do and done it have been beaten with a few blows. Those who have known and did it are be beaten with many blows. There is a measure of our being judged according to how much light we have received. Think about what Jesus said to the Capernaum people. He said, if what miracles had been done in you, Capernaum, or had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he said, it's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. Why? Capernaum received more light. And God does, in his judgment, bring judgment according to how much light we have received. Listen closely. Everybody in the world is without excuse. Romans 1 says that he's revealed himself through creation. All men are without excuse. His divine qualities, his divine nature have been clearly seen through what is made. Chapter 2, Paul goes on and says, even if they never heard the law of God, God wrote his law on their hearts. Everybody in the world, whether they heard the law of God or not, God put a sense of right and wrong within them. Every one of us. Now what you might consider right and wrong might be different from what I consider right and wrong. But every one of us, God's put a sense of right and wrong within us. Guess what? Have you ever gone against that sense of right and wrong in your heart? Yes. Of course you have. God's revealed to you that you're a lawbreaker. Now, so we can't go there and say, what about those who've never heard? In some way, they have all heard or one way or another. Have some heard more than others? Yes, that's important. Stick with that. We're going to come back to that. Have some heard more than others? I'll get right back to you, Mark, in a second. Have some heard more than others? Yes. Now, in the same way, we have to understand that then God will hold us accountable to how much light we have received. And what does he say about these people? They had a knowledge of the truth. They had a form of godliness. They had some interaction, if you will, with God and the things of the Spirit. Prophesying in his name, casting out demons. Remember Judas? He never was one of them, was he? And the Bible says that when he died, he went to where he belonged. Jesus himself said to Judas, you've got one with you, among you that's been a child of the devil from the beginning. But you remember when Jesus sent him out two by two? Do we have recorded anywhere that someone came back and said, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? I got paired up with Judas and he couldn't do the miracles. <laughs> there are those who have had an encounter, have had an interaction, if you will, with God and things of the spirit. They know more than others. And oh, it's going to be, it'd be better off if they hadn't known. Doesn't mean they were saved and they lost it. 
The Bible's real clear about the sealing of the, the Spirit or the perseverance of the saints. Mark, you were going to say something. I'm just tangled in that word, uh, escape the corruption of the world, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, entangled in it. And this word overcome, because I'm thinking overcome means to conquer. What does that word overcome mean in this context? Well, again, are you, uh, what translation are you using right now? Uh, New International, New International Version. Version. Got to keep in mind when you use, and I'm using the NIV as well, but I, if you remember, if you listen closely, I'll say a better word will be, a better word will be. You have to be real careful not using the word the NIV translators use. They have done a thought for thought translation. They haven't used the actual word most of the time. King James uses the word as well. Okay, that's good. But again, <laughs> I'm not here to bash any translations or whatever. The best thing to do is to wrestle with the actual word that's going on there. But, it, but like I said before, you use the passage, you use the context, and you use the whole of Scripture to interpret those places that make you go, mm, I'm wrestling with it. And again, like we're dealing with, I don't want you to believe anything that I say because I say it. Just how do you take that when it says entangled in it and overcome? It means mm -hmm. it then refers back to entangled in the flesh. Right. 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 So they're overcome by the evil of the flesh. So they haven't overcome their evil. No. Oh, no, no. No, no. no. It's not saying they've overcome their evil. So that's on the condition. Yeah, their condemnation has been long, long waiting. Mine says and are overcome. Uh, that's, uh, 20. Verse 20, yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, for the sake of time, so we can get done by 8 o'clock like we, we always do, what I want to do is I want to pull out three things real quick back in Second Peter that Peter points out from this passage about the false teachers. Real quick as we wrap up, let me give you three things that Peter points out, and I want it to be an encouragement to you. All right, the first thing he says is this. God knows how to deal with the wicked. You know, we could easily hear a message about false teachers are going to come in. They're going to teach doctrines of demons. And we could all get in the corner and say, is it you? Is it you? And Peter says, relax. God knows how to deal with the wicked. He said, remember the wicked angels. He talked about how, um, you see there, if verse 4, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And by the way, there's a word there in the Greek called Tartarus, and that's the only place it's ever used. And that's a special place of torment that he's holding angels. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 6, you'll see that back around the time of Moab, Noah, there was uh, some, some angels who looked on the women and they had relations, the Bible appears to say, that with the women. And their giants were made, and God had to bring destruction on the earth because of the corruption of the human race that was going on. And these angels who left their position of authority, Jude talks about it as well, they have been put in a special place of torment, held by chains, until the day of judgment for them. So Peter says, let me just tell you something. Don't get all panicky about these false teachers because God's already got judgment waiting for the angels and he, and he knows how to handle them. And then he talks about the wicked of Noah's day and how he brought judgment on the world. Verse 5, if he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people but protected Noah, preacher righteousness, and seven others. Then he also talks about the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah. And look at verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives. And we'll get to that in a second. Verse 9. He said, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from, the tri from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. So the first thing he says to us in this passage is, God knows how to deal with the wicked, folks. By the way, vengeance is whose? It's, it's his. That's God's. All right? So relax. All right? Go, go look at the second thing he says down there, too. He also says he knows how to protect and spare the righteous. 
Noah and his family is mentioned. We already saw Lot and his family is, is mentioned. And let's be honest, many of us have still wrestled with the fact that Lot was described as righteous. And then he was grieved because when we read the story back in Genesis chapter 19, sometimes we, we kind of struggle, you know. But just recently, God's given me a little insight into the, you know, where the, the men in the town see the angels come and they want to have sexual relations with them and they're banging down the door. And what does Lot do? He goes out and he offers his two virgin daughters and said, they've never been with a man. Do whatever you want with them. Now, for years, I had the reaction. I see a lot of your faces going, how could he? But God began to open my eyes because the scripture says he's righteous. But you know what? If you go back and you can double check me later on, you go back and look in the context. The reaction of the men when he says, here are my daughters, do whatever you want with them. Their reaction is, who are you to judge us? How did they hear judgment? All these years I thought Lot was offering his daughters. And I've got two beautiful daughters. I could never do that. Lot never offered his daughters. He knew they weren't the least bit interested in his daughters. He knew that their perversion had gotten to the place that they weren't even attracted by a girl at all. And he said, here are some girls the way God designed it to be. Do whatever you want. He was like Jesus pointing out. He was, and they knew full well what he was saying. He wasn't saying, here are my daughters, do what you want. He was saying, you don't even have any interest in girls who have never been touched. And they said, who are you to judge us? They heard what he was really saying. Man, that helped me out so much because for years I was like, how could you say he's righteous? But guess what? We could then go on, though, and see that when he told his sons-in-laws that God was going to bring judgment, they didn't believe him. We also could see that uh, later on when he went to the town where he went and hid. By the way, the angel said, go to the mountains. Lot said, no, let me go to the city. He talked the angels into it. When he got there, his, his daughters got him drunk. And they made Moabites and Ammonites. The, the nations, Moab and Ammon, came from that, them sleeping with their father. So we've got to be honest. The man wasn't perfect. How in the world, then, can he be declared righteous? Folks, the same way you and I can be declared righteous. Because God declares us righteous. Stop thinking you're righteous because you had a good week. Stop thinking you're unrighteous because you sinned. No, because of Jesus, you have been declared righteous. Now, a loving Father is going to shape you to make you look more and more like Jesus, but you have been declared righteous. The second thing, first thing is he knows how to deal with the wicked. Second thing is he knows how to protect and spare the righteous. And third thing is, he will deal with the false teachers and take care of us all at the same time. So we are not to, as we go into next time we get together looking at what these false teachers look like and the things they do, we are not to go out and begin a witch hunt to get rid of the false teachers. Jesus told a parable about the weeds and the wheat. We don't have time to go there, but if you were to look at it later on and see in Matthew 13, 24 through 30, he told the story about how the farmer sowed good seed in his field and then the enemy came at night and sowed bad seed. And then it sprung up and there were weeds among the wheat and the people, the worker said, Lord, where, where did this wheat, weeds come from? And he says, my enemy's done this. Well, do you want us to go separate? He said, no, because you'll do damage to the crop of the good seed, if you will. Wait until the harvest. It'll all be taken care of. So folks, we could get all panicky about the false teachers and we could have, there's a lot of people out there that make it their ministry to go point out all the false teachers. You notice Paul didn't name names. Jesus didn't name names. Peter didn't even name names. What are we to do? We're not to spend our time looking for false teachers. We're to spend our time getting to know the truth. 
so that you will know when what you heard is a doctrine taught by a demon or doesn't line up with the scriptures. Oh, you've got to know this book, folks. You've got to know this book. And I thank you for coming tonight to learn some more of it. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for this chance to study your word. We thank you for how you, when we take the time to slowly break it down and look at it and compare scripture against scripture, you give us insight and understanding. But Lord, at the same time, apart from your spirit giving us the insight, we would never be able to grasp it in and of ourselves, but it's a gift from you. And tonight we just say thank you. But Lord, we also pray that you bring us back together in a few weeks when we get back together to look at what these false teachers look like, not with the purpose of trying to name names, but with the purpose of being, well, good fruit inspectors. Be able to recognize a good tree and a bad tree and know what to avoid, what people not to have anything to do with, what people that we can trust that you're speaking through them. Father, you know my heart's desire and the fact that you've called me and gifted me to communicate your word. My desire is always that you be the one who do the teaching and that it not be about me and, and I would not lead people into error because your word says that not anybody should seek to be a teacher because we'll be held in higher accountability. Lord, we also know that you said, watch out for anyone that causes any of your little ones to stray or to stumble. And so Father, once again, I publicly acknowledge that as I come, I don't have an attitude of thinking I've got it all figured out, but I'm resting in your spirit. And I thank you for the fact that even though there have been times that I've come to see things differently now over the years than I used to teach, that doesn't make me a false teacher. It makes me a child who's learning and learning to yield to your spirit. And thank you that we learn more as Peter did as he continued to grow in his understanding of you through your spirit within him. So, Father, may we not become judgmental or looking here and there for these false teachers. May we get to know who you are and we'll be able to recognize it if it rears its ugly head. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.